Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Did you say The future has come to pass. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to I Survived the Rapture. We're the podcast that examines the Left Behind novel series, so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. Now I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. All right. Cool, man. I am actually really excited to close out book three, uh, Nikolai, The Rise of the Antichrist. How are you feeling about putting this one to bed? Much better than last time with Tribulation Force, because this one, it follows a really good story structure. We didn't have a slog, and like this third act is as how it should be. We have a proper like rising action and climax, and then a good like ease um, uh, into the the suspense of the uh, of what's going to happen next. We have a story. Yeah, <laughs> there's actually a narrative here. <laughs> it's not just a series of events. Just recounted and saying and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened we actually get a real narrative and it's one that i actually had a lot of fun reading like i think i talked about this before i went ahead and this is now the second time maybe the third time preparing for the show that i've listened to this book Mm-hmm. I think let's go ahead and get on into it. I'm I'm good if you are. I don't really have a lot of prelude. I had one thing for you because we oh yeah we have a new bit of our uh, of our kit now. My stack of books is getting ever taller. I have my ESV, my copy of Left Behind Three Nikolai, and the authorized Left Behind Handbook, which has already been a very good resource to helping me um uh, get more acquainted with certain bits. There's a handy chart that shows you like which book corresponds to which verses of Revelation. So I've gotten a minor spoiler, but nothing really shattering. Just it really helps me ground. And there's a, a little bit of trivia on the back, Shane. So I want to see how well you know Left Behind. Oh, hit me. What nine languages does Nikolai Carpathia speak? I can't name them all. So I'm going to say the nine languages of the United Nations or that all the languages of the United Nations and his own. That's actually one part of the answer. So yes, uh, you got it right, Shane. You, yeah. you, you will survive the rapture. <laughs> good, good. I'm not part of the one quarter of the world that uh, we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's uh, jump into chapter 14 then. Before we do that, though, um, now that you've brought up the handbook, I've got my own copy that's going to get here at some point. But would you probably advise listeners proceed with caution if they're going to pick that book up as far as spoilers go? Yes, because even I like I, I I cracked it open and it was just like there was too much knowledge. It was like this is an apple of Eden to the to the left behind series, so to speak. This has everything. So uh, luckily, it coordinates like certain bits of the book after it passes it notates of what book it's from so like say something from tribulation force i'll have a two next to it something from apollyon i'll have a five next to it so i've kind of been using that to dodge spoilers but i have gotten like a few minor things that i can't unsee so yeah proceed with caution it has forbidden knowledge 
Yeah, and he who increaseth knowledge increaseth also in sorrow. Yes. So just be careful if you're going to get your hands on this. If you don't care about spoilers, it's pretty cool, and I can't wait to get my copy in. All right, you ready? Yep, let's go. So where did we leave off chapter-wise? It was middle of chapter 14, right? I, be I believe so. I, uh, I have my exact bookmark at the beginning of chapter 14, so we can do a quick recap of what happened there. All right, so when we last left off, Buck, Dr. Zion ben Judah, and their pilot Ken Ritz barely escaping from an Egyptian airfield and flying on Ritz's private jet back to the States. Buck has been shot in the foot. Yep. And I think Zion hurt his leg somehow because uh, they mentioned that the two of them actually limp off the plane when they get there. They're still worried about the whole Verna situation. That, that's something that's still on the forefront of their minds. Verna has, has the Achilles heel of the Tribulation Force that she has not utilized yet, but that's always a, a, an ever-present worry in their mind. Specifically that she knows that Buck and Ray are associated, that Buck goes to church, he is a believer. She's kind of got that in her back pocket and could potentially ruin Buck's standing with Carpathia and the global community if she decides to divulge that. Buck has, has been encouraged by Chloe around the middle of 14 that he needs to read more of uh, Bruce's stuff. Chloe just has a feeling that there's probably something in there that they need, which obviously. We hear a little bit from Chloe that she is talking about having a child yeah. with Buck, which is an interesting point that I wanted to touch on really quick. Okay, go for it. They actually question the morality of bringing a child into a world that has so little time left. Yeah. Which that most this kid's gonna be like five or right. six. Right. And it's one of those moments of introspection that we see a lot in these books where the characters are challenged about the ethics of something that they're gonna do. And then they just kind of go, eh, and they gloss over it. They're like, just because we can, does that mean we should? Yeah, yeah, we probably should. Yeah, whatever. We'll think about it later. And it, it's kind of similar, not on the same level as the murder thing from the last episode, but they have these moments of introspection going, uh, is this the right thing to do? And then just sort of go, eh, which I think has something to do with the, if we feel like it's the right thing to do, that means God is telling us it's the right thing to do. Therefore we should do it. Right. That's something that I encountered a lot when I was in church. Uh, you sort of quote, feel the leading of the spirit and just sort of go with it. Mm hmm. So that's eh, morally questionable. So we get a little bit further and it, we talk a little bit more about Amanda and Rayford's just like, man, like I, we're still like kind of strangers in a way. Like, and you know what? I feel you, Rayford. I know nothing about this woman either. Even says in many ways, they still seem strangers. And he knew that in the little more than five years for the glorious appearing, they would never have the time to get to know each other. And then it goes on to say that Amanda, though, had kind of fallen into her role as a servant of New Hope. And that was her spiritual gift as is a uh, complete servitude yeah rub me weird <laughs> so i wanted to talk about that a little bit more so they talk about the spiritual gifts thing amanda's was being a servant and really what that means in the evangelical context is basically just willing to help the cause in whatever way leading bible studies praying for people coming in and cleaning up the church if it needs doing delivering meals to people just being there to be a support for whatever the church body needs mm -hmm. so it's not quite as sinister or insidious as servitude and that is something that you hear a lot in that doctrine, um, you hear a lot of it in the New Testament, mostly with, you know, 
Paul's letters and things like that of having a servant's heart. That one's one thing. Loretta having the gift of hospitality is another branch off of that. We talked about the spiritual gifts thing in prior episodes that when you receive the Holy Spirit after your journey in salvation has begun, gifts from God will manifest. And sometimes they border on the supernatural, things like dreams and visions and prophecy and things like that. But sometimes they can be more mundane. But the point of a spiritual gift is that it brings the kingdom of God up Mm -hmm. when you use it. Gotcha. You know, sometimes it could be caring for the community. Sometimes it could be literally speaking prophecy and anything in between. So in in this case, it could be also kind of seen as just like a adding a spiritual aspect to being a mem- an effective member of a community, so to speak. Yes, you are literally, they're just putting a spiritual coat of paint of, oh, that Amanda, she's a great person to have around. She's a real pillar of the community. Yeah, okay. And just kind of painting it with a spiritual coat, you know. I did notice that he mentioned that Amanda was a lonely, needy woman <laughs> before yeah. she Subtle Amanda bashing too. Like Amanda, Amanda also gets the the short end of the stick. And that pendulum swings because he then goes and says, in a lot of ways, he's closer to Amanda than he ever was to Irene with the whole faith thing. Yeah. Two partners having like a like diametrically opposed or not even diametrically opposed, just like different religious views can be a little bit awkward. So like now they're on like the same page. It's like a little bit easier to like. You have, like, more of a narrative, like, you can tell each other. The Bible would have referred to Ray and Irene as, quote, being unequally yoked. Yep, I've heard that phrase before. Yeah, and that's referring to the imagery of, like, oxen sharing a yoke as a man and a wife are brought together and supposed to pull their household forward. It's a weird metaphor, but saying that if you are a believer with a non-believer— or a casual believer with a spirit-filled or born-again believer, you are unequally yoked, meaning that the yoke that's on you, one is taller than the other, one is stronger than the other. You're not going to be able to produce the energy needed to pull your household in the right direction. We get another mention of the tribulation saints are coming. Uh, One of the many um, uh, references to that in this section. Switching back to Buck's perspective, uh, he kind of goes on a tour of the underground shelter and all of its amenities. We find out that it's about 24 feet by 24 feet. It's wired with all this telecommunications equipment. And Buck kind of looks at it. It's got three rooms, all these appliances, and it's hidden behind secret doors, behind secret doors. Oh, yeah. It's it's hidden behind like this one secret door. And then you're like in this room with a fuse box. Then you got to pull the fuse box back. And on that fuse box, it says danger, high voltage. So then you pull that back and you go down the stairs. And then again, on another door, it says danger, high voltage. So then you go through that one. And I think you're finally in the the plate. Yeah. He had a character named Bruce build a bat cave. Yeah. Catch that. (laughs) Oh, my. No. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yep. Yep. He did. Oh. I think okay, I think but, Jenkins might be a secret dork, dude. Like he, dude, he's got dude, Star Wars Church with a bat cave underneath, built by a guy named Bruce. Dude, I think uh, I think Jerry B. Jenkins is a little bit of a nerd. <laughs> so we get the tour, um, and then Buck does something real dumb. He decides he's going to follow the communication lines up to the steeple of the church. He literally climbs out on the steeple to see the antenna with a foot that's been shot in the middle of the night. 
which is super, super dangerous. It's a real dumb plan. But he goes up there and sees that they've converted the steeple into essentially a cell tower. I'm Buck Williams. I can't die. Exactly. Buck is aware of his own plot armor. And up there, he pulls a sticker off the satellite dish that says, Donnie Moore Technologies, your computer doctor. He grabs a concordance off the shelf, looks uh, up the word housetop. Now, if you don't know what a concordance is, it's a giant book. It highlights where certain words, like words are used in the Bible, like housetop. It'll show you everywhere in the Bible that refers to a housetop. Say the word like even like lamb. It'll show you the most prominent passages with the word lamb in it. So it's like, it's just a way of navigating the Bible quicker to get the ideas you want more efficiently. Yeah, it's like a biblical index because the Bible itself is already such a tome. That you need another You kind of need a separate book. Yeah, you... A separate book for just the index. He gets to the verse Matthew 10, 27 through 28. And that is, whenever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Kind of cool. It is cool. And it's kind of, it's not, I wouldn't call it foreshadowing, but it's showing Buck's thought process that he is planning ahead for the days where he's going to have to go into hiding. And he's going to mention that later, talking to Zion, that the message can still get out. Which I find that interesting here because he's like rediscovering the church old bell. So I have a feeling that that's going to be used again after uh, uh, something happens. And the imagery is kind of cool. Like, it's not bad. Like, I can objectively say, like, all right. It's a literal metaphor, preaching from the rooftops or using the church bell to summon people, call to worship, that kind of thing. And he's literally going to use the antenna on the church steeple to broadcast the message. Yeah. All right, Jenkins, not bad. Not bad. So the last bit of this little section is it irons out that Zion Benjuna would soon be proclaiming the gospel from a hidden location and sending it via satellite and the internet to anybody in the world that wanted to hear it and to many who didn't. So Zion is going to be given like a secret base soon to like be able to broadcast his message. Almost as if God had led Bruce to make this shelter so that Zion would have a place to hide. Mm-hmm. All falls into that God's plan thing. Right. All right. Are we ready to get into this Ray and Hattie stuff? This is another one of the onomatopoeia in the notes episode uh, episodes too. Or I just try like, ugh, or ugh. So this whole section gets into, and it's going to be brought up again. And again. This whole section gets into the abortion stuff. This is supposed to be like a trolley problem in the eyes of uh, in J- LaHaye and Jenkins. Because they, a few times, they make the mention of what kind of person is this going to turn out to be, you know? Because like, oh, yeah. it's the Antichrist son. So this is like automatically they're worried, is this person going to be predestined for evil? Which is kind of weird. Yeah, I think Ray has that thought mm-hmm. and then dismisses it. What stuck out to me out of this is kind of how a lot of the rhetoric has changed since the 90s. I found certain bits of this and the inner monologue Ray is having and the things he says to Hattie to be surprisingly soft-handed Yeah, on the topic of abortion. I think that the rhetoric has pivoted quite a bit, at least, you know, in our lifetimes, you know, going from teenagers to young adults and now, you know, slightly older adults. I think the whole, like, you're murdering the kid thing and just outright calling women who want their own reproductive rights murderers and all that kind of stuff, it's 
amped up with a lot of the other political rhetoric we see in kind of the right wing circles. Yeah. Whereas this, I still don't agree with it, but it's much more even keeled and trying to make a type of argument rather than just being like just iron fisted about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's even some parts where they're like, Hattie, like even if you you choose to have an abortion, we're still going to like we're not going to shun you away. Right. Which is something I don't think you see very often anymore. Yeah. Definitely. I don't know what portions you highlighted in this, but they started off with calling Hattie selfish. Yeah. She's not thinking about the good of anyone but herself. And then he goes into sort of advocating for those that can't advocate for themselves, which is a pretty standard pro-life line. Assume that this is a child who's looking out for that child's best interest. Ray chooses to frame the debate by saying, Assume that that fetus is a child, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people would just reject that premise outright. Right. I think he gets a little more ground to stand on by Hattie just sort of passively accepting that premise. And then he goes on and he says things like he was convinced that standing up for that fetus's rights was God's view. Yeah. And I just wrote how the Bible does not directly address abortion. Yeah. So why and how are you convinced this is God's view? This is another one of those moments that we keep talking about, about how right-wing political speech just gets woven in as if it is biblical canon. Hey, I'm going to jump in here real quick with a content warning because there is description of sexual violence and of incest and a few other things. So if that's not your favorite thing to hear, maybe skip over this part. Time code in the notes. Skip from here to here. Yeah, then we get to like one of the most moments of this where like he brings up the whole rape and incest uh stipulation yeah and just like even then like no i don't think you should yeah that's where it kind of takes a turn yeah he basically says that if you're gonna kill someone kill the rapist yeah yeah that don't kill the child and uh this is i want to go ahead and put one more thing about this vignette this is the second time that they've had a discussion about abortion not include a woman which we'll get there but like another woman hasn't talked to hattie yet and this is like our second vignette Right. I wanted to also say something about that specifically. They try to faint a little bit, and I do think it's a faint. I don't think it's in good faith because they have Rayford think to himself, well, what did he know? He was a man. He would never understand. Sure, that's a faint to draw you in. Yeah. To make you take them more seriously. Because even when Hattie eventually does talk to women about this, those are women characters written by men. Yeah. All these characters written by men, don't forget that. The female characters in the scene are almost kind of like their masks that they, they put on to be able to say that. Yeah, and I don't agree with it, and I think that just shoehorning this stuff into the story is gross. Yeah. Anyway, from there, we actually do get to move forward into some other kind of gross stuff. That's about Nikolai's plan for how things are going to move forward. Yeah. The news announces that the death toll from the famine and disease as a result of the war is going to be high. There's your other two horses, famine and disease, followed by death. World health care experts predict the death toll will rise more than 20% internationally. Global community potentate Nikolai Carpathia has announced the formation of an international healthcare organization that will take precedence over all local and regional efforts. Man, that's hitting different now, huh? Basically like, oh man, universal health care bad. That, that's what that's trying to signify in their view. Universal healthcare bad in light of multiple pandemics. So not great. 
Yeah. New directives that will direct life from the womb to the tomb. Also, come on. Did you have to make it rhyme? And also Ray observes that Carpathia's plan is to allow people to die in order to make room for the rest of the global community to flourish. So he basically says Carpathia is allowing all this to happen to enact a kind of Thanos plan. Yeah, and uh, again with this part, we get kind of into the homage to Brave New World because in oh, and 1984 in a way, because like pretty much in those two universes, they have like uh, a sort of eugenics thing. They engineer out any physical or uh, mental deformity like at birth. They're playing on that. Uh, yeah, part. we're going to get to that. The abortion brigade. Oof. Yeah, exactly. So we move into chapter 15 and the majority of this chapter is just Bruce's funeral. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good scene. Like, again, we have some unsavory moments even in this. It's all in all pretty okay. What happens is that Ray, Zion, and Buck are prepping for Bruce's memorial service. Zion can't speak because he is a wanted man. Buck can't show himself because his connection to New Hope and to the Tribulation Force is still largely unknown. So Ray is going to be delivering not only the eulogy, but preaching the message that Sunday. They refer to him again as Elder Ray again, which is, I find cool, because like that that's the second time it's been name dropped. And a fitting title because he essentially takes command of the Tribulation Force. Yeah, right now he is their de facto leader until another one gets officially uh, named, which we'll get in that to that later. They pray that Verna Z will end up coming to the uh, the service. I think Chloe actually made a deal with her when she left. Is like, hey, just promise me you're going to come to the service, okay. and she agrees to. In the morning before the whole thing, Zion Ben Judah helps cook in the kitchen, which I thought was a little neat little thing yeah that was cool him really ingratiating himself and and just becoming part of the family yeah also fun fact because now i'm an editor on the left behind wikipedia page uh, <laughs> I had to add amanda and zion to the list of tribulation force members on the template so oh, well, well done yeah well y you left out to the core members whoever updated that page last yeah keep them straight <laughs> so ray organizes the funeral he takes command of everything and as he's getting ready to deliver his message he is the first person to see bruce in the casket mm -hmm. and they point out something and this is something that was always said as a word of encouragement when matters of death came up is that that's not bruce yeah bruce is in heaven now that is an empty shell and that triggered a nostalgia button specifically for me and you know i've i've been to the funerals of loved ones and that is the rhetoric that's still used so funerals weren't like a really massive part of my life until a few years ago so i don't have too much context for that but that's kind of been a theme with a few of them so yeah i definitely agree with that and also on the program on the very back it has the phrase i know that my redeemer lives which is a reference to Job 1925. Just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, and Job being a series of punishments that someone who is a man of faith, who is loyal to God, undergoes, and still, even though his faith is tested, it never breaks, is kind of a metaphor for what the tribulation force are going through because yes. they're having to suffer these judgments of God and through it all maintaining their faith. Gotcha. We have a small Moses moment with Ray at there because he says speaking is not my gift, which a little bit of trivia. Some people believe that Moses had a speech impediment and or that's just one interpretation that through God, he was able to conquer that and preach. So, yeah, that was that was actually something I heard a lot 
in church is that it was assumed that Moses was unable to speak due to a speech impediment and then God spoke through him. Mm-hmm. Let's see, another line that I hear a lot gets quoted is the Bible is clear that all our righteousness, we are like filthy rag. There is no, none righteous. No, not one. We have turned everyone to his own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's a callback to some early, early stuff we talked about in the some of the first episodes. So take it. An epiphany I had kind of during this uh, last week. They throw the whole line that like you're just horrible at you. And then they also say, but we also have the antidote here right for you. They kind they set up a problem and like a condition that you have and be like, oh, but luckily we know how to fix it. So I, I, I noticed that and it was kind of a, a, a weird moment of, uh, of realization of like that's kind of the program that, that they throw you through. And if you look at Scientology, great example, they convince you there's a problem and they will sell you the solution. Right. It's not dissimilar. It's a very effective marketing tactic. Yeah. All in all. And there are some r slash atheist people that are going to say, like, all religions do that. I I think that even Christianity has varying degrees of that. Religions that are focused on evangelism typically do that. Not every religion out there is focused on evangelism. That is a unique trait that appears in some faiths, but not all of them. But if your focus is on evangelism, then absolutely yes. To our halfway point to the sermon, Rayford goes like, hey, if anyone needs to like take a break or leave, we're going over time here. So like go ahead and like go if you need to. And after a few moments, after it's obvious that like no one's moving, they all want to stay that they kind of like all have to share like a, a small laugh with each other. And it's like, all right, I, I guess there's things more important in this life than personal comfort, aren't there? Yeah, nobody's exactly trying to rush out to get to the buffet before the other churches. <laughs> They're all deciding they want to stick around. And that's a that's a kind of cool humanizing moment for everybody, because what we didn't mention is Ray is delivering this message to a packed house. Yeah, I think this is the first time we've seen New Hope packed since the rapture. Yeah, because everybody who was touched by Bruce is there. It's standing room only. It is a huge event. He transitions from that to Bruce's last sermon because he is taking Bruce's notes and he is being the voice for Bruce's like last thoughts on the earth, which is a cool little uh, like uh, lead up and like the passing of the torch, so to speak. Yeah, and I know you have some notes on this, but I'm going to hit the highlights and then we can go back and examine it because a lot of this chapter is just the eulogy and the sermon, mm-hmm. but it's a very important sermon that Bruce left. It covers the final bits of the sealed judgments. So we move past the four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, war, famine, and death. Those are the first four seals of seven in the first 21 months of the tribulation. So we were at 18 before war started, and then the famine and death will continue to last until the 21 months is up, which I think is one, I think we're closing in on that now Mm -hmm. in the timeline. And then the fifth seal is the martyred saints in the white robes at the altar in heaven. It's not really a judgment as much as it is an image. Uh, Revelation describes that, and we're going to circle back and see that in a second. And then we get the sixth seal, which is the wrath of the lamb, a worldwide earthquake, which will result in people dying and in such great pain that they cry out for rocks to fall on them and crush them. The sun will turn as sackcloth, meaning black, and the moon will be as blood. 
And that's all in Revelation 6, 12 through 17. So what can you tell me about those verses? Well, first, let's go into the fifth seal. Because the fifth yeah. seal, I kind of uh, went through the, the web of footnotes and got this kind of three-point thing about the fifth seal. They are said to be wearing white robes when they rest. And those uh, white robes are unsoiled, and they s- symbolize consistent obedience and courageous faith. And from the martyrdom of these saints, that everything that is to follow after is God avenging their deaths. God is very angry, and all of the judgment to come after that is as a result of these uh, tribulation saints being martyred. The lament of the slain, uh, slain is, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the whole layman of the um, slain is referencing Psalms 13.1 and 89.46. Call back to the Psalms there. And what's happening, like Gavin said, is when the fifth seal is opened, the slain martyrs, and I don't know if the Bible specifies or if LaHaye and Jenkins are trying to put their own spin on this, but the slain martyrs, maybe not just of the tribulation, but anyone who has been martyred in the faith, are appealing to God and saying, Hey, they killed us for our faith in you. Will you not pour out your wrath, O Lord, on this wicked land? And finally, at this point in the tribulation, God has had enough. Yeah. And that is the prelude to God is like, all right, you know what? I've hit my limit. I am going to pour out my wrath on the earth, which is kind of inconsistent considering he had kind of been doing that already. Yeah. I don't have much on the sixth seal other, but it does have like, it references a lot of stuff from the old Testament there. What I'm getting here and kind of why I'm excited for the next books. It's like the conditions are reverting back to old Testament times. So to speak, vengeful, wrathful God. Yes. So this, this is no more of the new Testament God that we're getting here. It's kind of like an old Testament God that has to be reined in by Jesus coming back. Yes. Like you said, we get back to the old Testament God. The one that you'll hear a lot of people say, man, old Testament God is really horrible. Whereas new Testament God is loving kindness and forgiveness and all of these good things. God is love. Not anymore. Yeah. So he reverts back to the God who flooded the world. He reverts back to the God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He reverts back to the God who can summon fire from heaven to burn his enemies. The God who knocked down the walls of Jericho. Old Testament wrathful sinners in the hands of an angry God. God Mm -hmm. is where we get here because he is so fed up with his people being slain for believing in him is the interpretation we're working with here. And then so uh, Rayford gives that whole spiel in his words. He realizes that like he needs a break now because he's kind of been pouring out all of this and now he needs some sugar. So he goes off stage and then Amanda's just right there like, what do you need? And he's some orange juice. And he's like, oh, you make me sound like a diabetic, which I I get that was supposed to be joking. But like, he's like, literally, your wife is asking you what you need. She's about to give it to you and you're going to throw her a snarky comment. Yeah, come on, man. Like that was another just uh, come on. Like I've got diabetic loved ones. And I was just like, hey, that's not let's maybe let's not joke, huh? That's a real thing. And I I couldn't leave this chapter without mentioning the seventh seal. Okay. 
And that's another image we see tossed around a lot. You know, the seventh seal will open and everything. And that's a that's another one of those things like the four horsemen of the, the apocalypse that runs through a lot of apocalyptic imagery. Ray straight up says that Bruce has no idea what the seventh seal judgment is, only that it's so bad that there is silence in the heavens for half an hour. Yeah. Silence, which is pretty metal. Like it's something so bad that even heaven goes, oh. It's really quiet for half an hour. (laughs) Yeah, press F for Earth. The most important part of that is that it is the prelude to the seven trumpet judgments, that after the seventh seal is opened, the seven angels pick up their trumpets to begin the next set of seven judgments, which are going to stretch forward into some of the other books that we're going to read soon. The first trumpet judgment happens in Soul Harvest. I think so too, as far as I remember. So let's hop into chapter 16. All right. Turns out the gambit with Verna looks like is not paying off because she accosts Buck in the parking lot. She's just like, Zion Ben Judah was at that church. (laughs) Yeah, she saw Zion with Loretta because they originally planned to have Zion go with Loretta to look like he's maybe a relative. Verna's not buying it. She's the only one, apparently. Also, I, I want to like interject real quick with like a quick anecdote. Uh, I actually was talking to one of my Jewish friends like between episodes and I mentioned that the rabbi's name was Zion Ben Judah and they just go, wait, you're kidding me. They did what? <laughs> just hearing that name, my friend was just like, I can kind of see what uh, what perspective they're writing this these this book series with just on that alone. Doesn't it mean son of Judah, Ben Judah? I believe so, yes. I think we might have talked about that last time that the from the tribe of Judah, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. But having his name be Zion without spelling it Z-I-O-N has a lot of stuff you can unpack there with the idea of Christian Zionism, which are definitely aspects of evangelicalism. Yeah. Which we've talked about previously. I just don't think we've used the words Christian Zionism. That is a concept. Verna goes in, she's like, wait, so your your church people believe that Nikolai Carpathia is the Antichrist? Buck, you're one of these people. Like, uh, like I could I could turn you into your boss about this and get you fired. And even worse, if I uh, tell it to Carpathia, like, he's going to know. And she specifically says, I don't know how to handle this because I'm not going down with you. So she assumes that eventually Buck is going to go down for this, that the jig is going to be up, that he is going to either be arrested or fired or some kind of negative consequences for his involvement, not only with the church, but with Ben Judah, because he's already been implicated despite his stealth ops in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, He's already been implicated. So the clock is kind of ticking on not only his career, but potentially his freedom. Right. And Verna clocks that and is like, hey, if they know that I helped you or they know that I knew and didn't talk, I'm in trouble too. So you better make this worth my while. Buck agrees to meet her at the office at 6.30 to, like, talk about, like, just basically, like, arrange, like, okay, how are we going to handle this? There was a, a last viewing of the coffin, this procession of people that are wanting to, like, pay their last respects, get some closure by seeing the body. Um, yeah, the memorial service mm-hmm. of the procession past the coffin, which, you know, it's pretty common in a lot of Christian funerals, you know, going and having a viewing. And sometimes it's in a separate service, but in this case, it's just after. So, you know, people can go by and see the uh, see the remains and maybe say a little prayer. And Zion actually slips out and escapes to the shelter. So when Vern is like, yeah, he was right over. Well, he's gone, but he was here. <laughs> <laughs> and he, Zion kind of pieces out to the shelter. 
Donnie Moore uh, comes to the church at this moment. It's like, hey, I'm trying to find Buck. I got his like massive load of laptops ready for him. His possibly $100,000 worth of tech yeah. that he brings in you know, easily. So he brings that in and um, delivers him all the laptops and all the cell phones. So now we actually are getting to a point where all of our main characters have cell phones. So the world is starting to seem a little bit more contemporary. Yeah. Buck is not having to do a hack anymore to have internet access. He's now that, that plot obstacle has been removed for now. We get a little bit of recap about Stonegull and uh, the Pontifex Maximus. We learn specifically that Enigma Babylon is being moved to New Babylon as its headquarters. It's not going to be headquartered in Rome any longer that Peter Matthews has agreed to start the process of moving it to New Babylon, which, all right, it seems appropriate. They also mention that the the plot element of infinite money will one day go away and that they need to start investing in gold. To be, you saw that too, huh? Yeah, yeah, they they uh, they're they're prepping for having new currency, not being able to trade because of uh, with money. So like, crap, we need to start getting gold together so that we have a way to trade once the markets. That is such a 1990s into the 2000s right-wing prepper thing. It, sometimes it was gold. Sometimes it was silver. Alex Jones' advertisers, man, that's like, you got to buy gold just in case the new world order takes over. And, uh, you need hard currency. Right. And that's not just on Alex Jones either. Like, that was like every like commercial break on Fox News. They would be shoving gold in your face. I think they still do. Yeah, yeah. No, they definitely do. That- <laughs> just. The monetary panic over the possibility of currency changes or the collapse of a certain currency or the downgrade of possibly the U.S.'s credit rating. All of a sudden, the dollar is worthless. You got to have gold. You got to have gold, brother. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I got a little carried away. I apologize for that. They're all sitting around trying to figure out how to use the laptop. Loretta goes like, oh, I don't know how to use none of them laptop. Funny little boomer moment. There. Of course, the the one elderly character doesn't know how to use a computer. You could have written that she takes to it easily, and that would have been at least interesting. Yeah. Well, Gavin, we know olds can't computer good. Oh, so. I don't know nothing about that old, fa- that new fancy smancy technology. Exactly. Um, but then they also kind of ice Loretta out of some of their Tribulation Force plans. They don't really bring her in as a full member because they want to protect her. Yeah, they mention exactly that she might be like mind-controlled truth serum, so they don't even want to put that knowledge. And I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned Eden earlier. They, yeah, they don't even want to put that grain of knowledge in there because knowledge itself is a burden. So she doesn't even need to know where he is. The but- fact that they mentioned Truth Serum is really funny. Like, it's such a, like, knockoff spy movie thing. But it's understandable why they do it. They don't want her to be compromised. They don't want her to be put in a vulnerable position. It's kind of like why Peter Parker doesn't tell Aunt May he's Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> like, to make another nerd metaphor. Which, I mean, Loretta is kind of the Aunt May of this crew. Yeah. We cut to Buck going to meet Verna, and Chloe decides to tag along. So they go to the office. Verna's like, all right, cards on the table. What's going to happen now? And I think that she expects to get something out of Buck, but I don't even think Verna knows what she wants. Yeah. Did you, did they, did that hit you that way? Yeah, because it's kind of like, uh, she kind of conflicted because Buck did like, uh, help her, but at the same time, she doesn't want to be involved in all this. So she's just like, all right, how do we go about this so that everyone's happy here? 
Yeah, she's almost like sell me on not ratting you out. Yeah. Which was a weird turn. Like she doesn't really try to extort him, even though she flexes like she's going to. Mm -hmm. And it's really Chloe who kind of pulls the ace in this one because Chloe essentially gaslights Verna. Was that Ben Judah? And uh, is like, I don't know. You tell me. You seem to think it was. Was it? So someone was sitting, like, it was It was that guy sitting next to Loretta. Oh, you think Loretta's dating Zion Ben Judah? Is that what you're saying, Verna? Actual line from that. She starts playing weird mind games with her, and Verna's getting increasingly more flustered. She's like, you know what? I'm just going to call Loretta. And Loretta's already been tipped off, like, hey, you don't know where Zion Ben Judah is. And she even just goes, you want the honest truth, Verna? That man's my secret lover. I keep him under the bed. <laughs> Just like, all right, if it was coming out of anybody else's mouth, that would be such a left behind, like, bleh, Jenkins line. But since he's had the little old lady say it, it's adorable. Yeah. Loretta is absolutely adorable. We get a, a Nostradamus uh, name drop where Vern even says, it was kind of strange, kind of impressive. But isn't it just like Nostradamus? Can't these prophecies be read into? Can they mean anything you want them to mean? Which, uh, you know, honestly, Verna, I feel you. Yes, Verna, they can. Yes. <laughs> and I actually wrote that next to the, I was like, why yes, they can. But remember that Jenkins and LaHaye's interpretation is the only interpretation and do not deviate from that. Because we're going to use the plot to justify it. Oh God. Then we get, <laughs> I, I don't like this next part, Shane. Oh, me neither. So Buck is trying to make a comparison to, hey, this whole Ben Judah thing that you think you know is my personal business. You keep my personal business out of your mouth, just like I would with you. Hey, for instance, let's say uh, you were a lesbian. And she and she's like, wait, who, who told you that? And she outs it. Yeah. And Buck realizes, oh man, I, whoops. <laughs> yeah, this is, because uh, he didn't know. And so it's like the Holy Spirit functions as a gaydar, which learning that <laughs> and like, Okay, so let's, let's unpack this for a moment. I'm sorry, that one got me. <laughs> Here's another weird thing where Verna Z, like it, we have, if we keep in the context, like Tim LaHaye's just on the phone, like, hey, uh, we, we got this gay character that I need you to write. Uh, what, what are we going to name her? How about Verna Z? Just a terrible name yeah. for this, as Tim LaHaye would put it, this unhappy gay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not forget he wrote that book. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Tim LaHaye wrote a book called The Unhappy Gays. And, is that, and that's why Verna's always unhappy. Yeah, she's angry. She's vindictive. She's a shrew. She is just an unlikable person. Clearly, it's because she's gay. Choice move, guys. I'm real proud of you for this section. Uh, yeah, uh. I wrote dot, dot, dot. Wow, they went there. Yeah, exactly. But at least we get to end this chapter on a section that's a little heartwarming. So we find out that there's a massive backlog for burial because of the amount of bodies also hitting different. Yep. Welcome to 2020, 2021, everybody. Ugh. Ray actually takes a moment with Loretta to show her Bruce's personal file and journal about her. I don't think that they go specifically into what it says, but whatever it is, but it touches Loretta deeply. Yeah. And she actually has a real emotional moment, which I thought was great. Which, uh, which yeah, that's very cute. Yeah. Let's so go on to chapter uh, 17. Leon Fortunato comes out and like, hey, have you seen the potentate's woman? 
or it's even <laughs> the like, potentate's woman. Yeah, even Rayford's like, wait, the potentate's woman. He said with disgust. Like nobody talks like that, man. Hey, uh, the Antichrist is looking for his broad. Yeah, he might as well have said that. And you know, Leon Fortunato is painted to be incredibly unlikable. So if there's anybody who's going to talk that weird, maybe him. Mm-hmm. And of course, they give the guy who's kind of a weird mob toady an Italian name. Yeah, real lazy guys. I'm not a fan. Um, but Ray decides not to play ball. He's not going to tell him where Hattie is. And he's like, you guys got resources. Find her yourself. I don't know exactly where she is, and I'm not going to hunt her down for you. Right. The guy that Buck met on the boat, he got, like, beaten within an inch of his life. And uh, he swore that Buck was, like, he didn't rat out Buck there, which was another thing we get. Yeah, we find that out from Steve, that Michael did not give up Buck even under torture which, you know, good for Michael. Like, that's that's being strong in your faith and for the cause. You know, Michael's a true martyr, so. Some more, like, insight on how uh, they're going to make up their, like, little communication network with these laptops, and they, they're going to start, like, a messaging board, just a central bulletin board, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. they mentioned bulletin board systems, BBS, man, and I just wrote, old (laughs) next to that like there's so many people probably listening to this that have no idea what a bbs is like i didn't even use them i just know what they are i kind of thought they were gonna make something like 4chan ish kind of thing just a a series of boards but yeah i didn't even know that uh that's what it was referencing i mean it basically is like it's not different from an image board or it's not different from even like a subreddit but a bulletin board system was something that you would have to dial in directly to i think via like a specific ip address Mm -hmm. and you would just post yeah and i don't even think at the time they had the structure or the ability to like do threads or replies or anything like that but it was just going on and posting yeah like it was probably the earliest version of shit posting like that we've you've ever seen like it's pre-reddit pre-chan pre-forums really i think forums are probably like old school forums are probably the closest thing you can compare to a, a bbs to a bulletin board system gotcha but it's an effective way to get the message out there yeah Hattie uh says that if anyone wants to meet her she'll be at this place called mitchell field for like a, around a six hour layover. She's like, hey, if anyone wants to come see me, I'll be there, but don't feel obligated to. And Loretta's like, oh, they'll come, hon. Don't you worry about that. So Loretta being old Southern Belle again. Hattie takes an action showing her own agency and reaches out to people for help and guidance. Yeah. I think it is appropriate to see that this is not a good thing because the only moment Hattie truly starts showing agency is when she is contemplating either having or not having her abortion yeah because remember the only thing we want to give women to think about is uh babies and pregnancy yeah that kind of seems like a major theme of this book like any woman in it is either attending to their man thinking about babies or being like in like the servant's attitude sort of deal yeah they're in a subservient position regardless So then we move on that Buck is still publishing Global Community Weekly, and he actually takes the opportunity to do a whole cover story about the wrath of the lamb. Yeah, will we suffer the wrath of the lamb is a question that he asks, like, so many different, like, world leaders, small town folks, like, everybody. He's getting everyone's opinion on it. It's basically a redo of his rapture story, but from the wrath of the lamb earthquake perspective. Mm -hmm. I just wrote all the Enigma Babylon people just say, nah. (laughs) All the scientists just say, nah. 
He even talks to Matthews about this, and he's like, and he asks him, are you not aware that the idea of fearing the wrath of the Lamb is a doctrine still preached in many churches? And Matthew goes, of course, but these are all the same holdovers from your right-wing fanatical fundamentalist factions who have always taken the Bible literally. Yeah, this particular strain is starting to get old. Anytime we talk about Enigma Babylon, that it is the crystallization of all the things that fundamentalist evangelicals are afraid of, or rather looking down on about modern Christianity that it basically becomes secularized. Kind of what in the last book I think Ben Judah was complaining about with modern Judaism mm-hmm. was that it's becoming too secular. Matthew says a lot of things like I think the idea of spirits or heaven and hell are just ideas and they are meant to be interpreted as a guide to how to live your life on earth, which is a way that a lot of people view spirituality as you and I have talked about a lot. But this is painted as evil. Not just incorrect, not just misguided. It is painted as an active agent of evil. That if you believe this way, you are doing the devil's work. Yeah. Which is real heavy handed and gross. He asks him again, like, what is uh, heaven and hell? And he says, Heaven is a state of mind. Heaven is what you can make of your life here on earth. I believe we're heading towards a utopian state. Hell? More damage has been done to more tender psyches by the holy mythical idea of that. Well, let me put this way. And then he goes on and on about the wrath of the lamb uh, again. But yeah, I I think uh, him saying that hell damages psyches is uh is kind of an accurate statement as well i agree and i actually wrote that in my notes and said great point pontiff yeah he says how does the idea of a loving merciful god jibe with hell spoilers it doesn't so great point we've even talked about how that's affect us personally with like the whole rapture scare phenomenon that gets into that same thing like this whole idea that like yet you create this boogeyman plane of existence that hey if you don't you don't do the right thing you're gonna go to like eternal torment land yeah, I'm I'm not going to try to tip an our atheist fedora too much this episode, but like, yeah, that is actually something that I feel is that, especially growing up, being taught that, hey, if you don't follow this, you're going to burn for eternity, did damage my psyche. Yeah. And I think we talked about that last episode. Mm-hmm. And I think we've talked about it previously. Same with the rapture scare. You're going to be left behind to this fallen world that's going to go through these trials and tribulations, you know, become literally the new kingdom of the Antichrist. That's the threat. And you're going to lose everyone close to you and probably die. Right. That's another hell type threat. So Verna actually calls Buck back in and basically checking in on him like, hey, are you uh, you keeping my secret? Because I'm keeping yours. You keeping mine? Oh, wait, there's this one part we missed where like Buck's, uh, Buck's magazine, like the reviews came in. I want to touch on that real quick. Uh, oh, hit that. It's about half and half. So Global Community Weekly is stooped to the level of the tabloids, covering every latest fairy tale to come out of the so-called church. Leave this trash the yellow journalists. Then another said, I wouldn't have dreamed people still believe this malarkey. That you could dig up that many weirdos to contribute to this to one story is a tribute of investigative <laughs> journalism. Thanks for ex- malarkey. Thanks for exposing them to the light and showing them what fools they really are. Then one woman in Florida said, Why didn't someone tell me about this before? I've been rev- reading Revelations since the minute this magazine hit my doorstep, and I'm scared to death. What am I supposed to do now? So you get some people that are like, This is a bunch of bull and someone else is like how do i learn more yeah specifically someone from florida which i thought was funny i'm sorry i'm stuck on malarkey <laughs> listen here jack no more of this malarkey give me some ice cream 
So trying to sound real presidential right now. We move back on to Verna and they bring up the her sexuality again. Buck is like, hey, if you ever want to talk to me about like all of this tribulation stuff, you can come to me. And she's like, what? W- with your religion, what says about homosexuals? Are you kidding? And then Buck goes, my Bible doesn't differentiate between homosexuals and heterosexuals. It may call and homosexual sinners, but it also calls heterosexual sex outside of marriage sinful. Semantics, Buck, semantics. Why was he Southern? <laughs> uh, I don't know. He bucks tradition. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, maybe. <laughs> That's probably staying in. That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. Did that seem another kind of soft-handed thing to you? Yeah, like, it, we don't really get much of that anymore. It's kind of like, you know, the just the holding up the, the sign that says, like, God hates gays. Yeah, dude. I think as we've seen a culture shift with the legalization of gay marriage and everything else, clearly that portion of the culture war has been won on the right side. I think the rhetoric has ticked up again, where there's no longer a, well, it's, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. That's not as common anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's way more about like gay equals hell. Right. With the whole like Westboro Baptist Church stuff. If you're still a holdout on that kind of thing and you haven't just admitted that that cultural battle is lost. Yeah. I remember like when gay marriage was being legalized, like how much of like that just sent a lot of evangelicals into a frenzy because like there's like, oh, what's next after that? Like what else are they going to ask for next? They're going to be allowed to marry a duck? They're making us bake them wedding cakes. I, yeah, that just struck me as really kind of light-handed of just like, hey, my Bible doesn't distinguish, you know, you being gay is no different than people having sex outside of wedlock. Right. But a sin is also lying or uh, a sin is also cursing or, you know, these other things, which is, it's way different. Like, I was always raised in a home that never discriminated against gay people. My parents were not on that train. You know, that was never a value that was instilled in me. It definitely was around. Yeah. But... There was another one of those things that, you know, we got home from church. My mom and dad were like, yeah, don't listen to any of that. Yeah, and in my household, it was kind of the opposite. Like, that was, like, seen as a very core, crucial uh, thing that needed to be instilled. Like, hey, this is bad, which was, I don't know. It, it wasn't it wasn't fun. Yeah, that's, that's rough, man. Uh, moving on from that, we're on a plane with Rayford, McCollum, and Carpathia, Fortunato, and Dr. Klein to Rome to pick up Peter Matthews. The boys got to get together, so they're all hitching a ride. They start talking about some of the construction developments in New Babylon, and specifically the international terminal, so they can just go there instead of having to come in through Baghdad. But they mention, like, oh, if this earthquake's going to happen, I can't wait to test out the earthquake-proof buildings in New Babylon, which it seems that Carpathia has kind of been anticipating this in the background. It's just like, go ahead and make everything, like, just earthquake proof yeah that's actually going to be stuff that shows up later how much later spoilers i can't tell you okay Uh, (laughs) and then we get another thing about the whole like water turning into blood thing like anyone that has been carrying on about the arrest and torture of people associated with dr ben judah all of the water supplies around those areas have been polluted by blood and they specifically they ask like wait is it human blood like well we've tested it but it has all the characteristics of human blood but it's difficult to determine it borders on some cross between human and animal blood so it's not even like fully human or animal man i thought it was so weird that they just wanted to add that detail in there you know yeah i mean 
It's cool, like, I guess. Maybe, and this is just, like, a wild theory I have in there. Maybe it's supposed to be both, like, lamb blood and human blood because of, like, the, the dual thing about Jesus being, like, the like the wrath of the lamb. And so the lamb is both a physical lamb and a human. Yeah, maybe. It's definitely starting to tiptoe into that Stephen King weirdness. Yeah. It also may be referencing the, the spear piercing the side and the blood and water flowing yeah. at the crucifixion. But this is all happening as a result of Eli and Moisha because we have, we've gone a whole episode without talking about them. Mm-hmm. We even get, like how I mentioned a few episodes back, how we had like some Acme tactics um, to get rid of the witnesses. Carpathia is just like, if those rascals do not immediately purify the water supply, we will sh- see how they stand up to an atomic blast. So Carpathia is just like, these people are giving us trouble. Just, just nuke them, man. God's not the only one who's had enough. Right. My boy Nick specifically says, the day will come when they push me too far. So he's ready to nuke them. He's like, I am done. I am no longer asking. <laughs> And um, we end this chapter on kind of the full circle abortion talk that we hear from the mouths of the villains that the plan is to put more funding into abortions in third world countries. And Nikolai basically says, well, the whole world's a third world country now, so I guess we'll do it everywhere. When he says put more money into abortions, he means trying to encourage them, not only because of economic uh, relief reasons, like, hey, the world has been torn apart by war. You don't really want to bring a child into all this. Additionally, because he's going to put money into requiring amniocentesis with every pregnancy to try and weed out genetic defects, things like that, because of exposure to all kinds of chemical weapons and nuclear weapons. And if there's anything that pops strange or abnormal on those amniocentesis tests, yeah, you probably want to go ahead and get an abortion is going to be the line. And uh, just for uh, clarification, amniocentesis is where they take the uh, amniotic fluid in the uterus and test that for like anything going on. And it's on a genetic level. Yeah. Trying to see if there's anything that could lead to a birth defect. Yeah, so they're starting to get into, again, that very dystopian trope where, like, mass eugenics is going to be a a mainstay of, like, a world state. That's it. Yeah, that's another right-wing talking point and that you hear a lot with your far-right extremists and specifically, like, far, not far-right extremists, far-right conspiracy theorists is that the only reason abortion is being normalized is so that they can enact eugenics. Yeah. It's a big leap in logic and it's a bad talking point, but... They are putting it right here into the plot of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, you love it. You love to see it, folks. Love to see it. <sighs> We're going on to chapter 18, and everyone, like Buck Williams, is back to being the talk of the town, baby. Every talk show, news show, and even some variety shows are mentioning the Wrath of the Lamb thing. There's even like a little animated political cartoon where they have a woolly lamb going on a rampage on a comedy show and they call it Our View of the Wrath of the Lamb. So SNL's uh, putting a short in there. Yeah, Fallon's probably talking about it. Kimmel's probably talking about it. It's important to mention you said he's back, that Buck is back, not in a good way. The world is laughing at him yeah and so he even's like saying like man when he becomes a fugitive like it's going to be impossible to have this kind of coverage again like even though he's being laughed at he's just like this is going to be one of the last times i'll be able to even like all the people that are seeing it now will be able to see it we'll see if he's vindicated just a little bit later in this chapter huh ray goes to pick up 
Pontifex Maximus Peter Matthews. Yeah, how, how good of you to allow us to come and collect you, Pontiff? Do you have anything else about that? Yeah, we start noticing that Matthews is getting a little too big for his britches. Yeah. Because remember, Enigma Babylon is not officially part of GC. Yeah. They are two separate entities, kind of like the Vatican being its own separate entity. Now, did Nikolai have a hand in creating it? Yes. Is it under the purview of the global community? No. Matthews has essentially been running Enigma Babylon with all of its, they're not called priests, they're called faith guides. Mm -hmm. That's another thing where they think they're creating their own Orwellian newspeak. And like we discussed last time, that's not what it is. They're just rebranding. Matthews is starting to run Enigma Babylon like his own little fiefdom. And that fiefdom is in trouble because they are running out of sources of income because they cannot unload all of these excess church buildings. So this whole meeting with Nikolai is actually to put forward terms that can strike a deal with the global community to bring Enigma Babylon further on board. Yeah. Amanda says a prayer for uh, Hattie Durham. And then we finally get to the last vignette of this whole abortion art. Yeah. Where uh, Loretta and Chloe come in. Finally, we have some women offering some advice to Chloe, which again, that's through the medium of these male authors. So yeah, we finally have women offering advice, but not really. I don't know. Maybe maybe Tim like was just like, Beverly, come in here. I need you to help me write this woman. <laughs> Beverly, Beverly, come on in here. I don't know what Tim like sounds like. That's that's <laughs> bad. Um, uh, maybe we'll cut that out. I don't know. Leave it in. Beverly, <laughs> Beverly, get on in here. <laughs> I never, I have this character named Hattie Durham. Help me, help me figure out. Help me write this, hussy. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's keep going. Oh, yeah, they, uh, they, they, they mentioned that they're going to start forming the, the not-secret police, where they start talking about they're going to create an organization of elite enforcers, if you will, of pure thought. And so Carpathia goes, hey, yeah, we would call them the GCMM or the Global Community Morale Monitors. He even says, we don't want to call them the secret police or the thought police, another Orwell reference, or the hate police or any kind of police. Make no mistake, they will be secret and they will uh, have power. How much power? No limit on their power. Yeah, I kind of love this because this is, again, the fundamentalist evangelical dystopian nightmare. They're going to make hate police that come after us for all the hating we're doing. <laughs> and specifically, he mentions that it's to help out Peter Matthews because there are two groups on Enigma Babylon's hit list that refuse to join the fold, and it's evangelical Christians Orthodox Jews, mm -hmm. which I think in the narrative, as we've seen so far, LaHay and Jenkins are painting Orthodox Jews as the closest thing to converts that we can pretty easily sway them because of the whole 144,000 thing. So they are the closest allies, even though clearly they're not 100% allies because you have them brutally murder Zion and Judah's family. So we're getting a lot of mixed messaging here. Oh, yeah. And so finally, we have Zion is in the whole underground bunker now. Oh, before we before we go to that, I just want to make one last point about the morale monitors. Yes, it is objectively a bad thing if you have a plainclothes secret police force who are allowed to act with impunity against 
any sort of detractors or subversive elements within your one world government. That is objectively a bad thing, but they don't say it's a bad thing in the text for political reasons, for ethical reasons. They don't attack that. It's just, oh, they're going to come after us for being Christians. That's, That's not, not a good reason. Yeah. It is a reason, but it's not the reason why objectively that would be a bad thing. It's a You need to look at a bigger picture here if you're going to try to make that argument, and they choose not to do that. Exactly. And so uh, moving on, we go to the whole Under New Hope book kind of goes down there and tries to give Zion some company because he's literally in just a small area. Zion's in, has them quarantine feels going oh, on. yeah, dude, for real. But he's a, a little, during this visit, he's a bit like just overjoyed. And he says, were I not living with a heaviness of soul right now, certain parts of this place, even its location would be paradise. I can read, I can study, I can pray, I can write, I can communicate by phone and computer. It is a scholar's dream. I miss the interactions with my colleagues, especially the young young students who help me. But Amanda and Chloe are wonderful students themselves. So he has this just tech palace. He can surf the Bible faster than he has ever b- have before. He is in full scholar's paradise, like he said, which, which is kind of cool. He's just like, man, I got the internet now. This is Yeah, and it's cool. I do have a little bit of a problem with the sort of stereotyping that's going on that the two. Ah, because Jewish characters that are ostensibly, I mean, Chaim isn't a believer, but that are ostensibly painted as good guys are just nerds like that. They are just shut in bookish kind of timid in their own way, like just sort of homebody nerds. Mm -hmm. It's a little stereotypey for me. Yeah. Like, so that, that made me just go, uh, but yeah, at the same time, like there are worse places for him to be set up, you know? Oh, I had one more thing I wanted to add about Buck's musings as he's going through it. As Zion is talking about his family, Buck has a moment of worry that Chloe is going to suggest adopting this Antichrist baby. Like that was, yeah, that was a weird, I highlighted that as well. Cause I was just like, come on. Like, so you're having like second doubts of him bringing a child into the world. And then this possible child that you've spent this entire book moralizing of, you're like, oh, do I got to take care of Antichrist baby? Yo, that is, I think they're telling on themselves. <laughs> I only say that because within pro-life circles, there is a massive emphasis on adoption. I come from a family that actually has adopted. My little brother is adopted. That was something that my parents specifically said when they chose to adopt instead of choosing to have another biological child was they felt like it was something that God was calling them to do because my parents are very strong in their faith. But there's a notable lack of ready and willing evangelical candidates in a lot of cases to stand up and take a lot of adoptions. I don't have numbers in front of me, but I can guarantee you they are not exactly lining up to adopt children. So they're saying, oh, you shouldn't abort that child, put it up for adoption. Great, are you gonna adopt it? I mean, uh, well, I, uh... And so with Buck having those second thoughts, it's almost like they're telling on themselves. Right, I get you. And then we go into chapter 19, which is that, is this the last chapter? It is. I actually didn't put the chapter break in there. So right as we have a recap of Zion and Buck deciding that when the day finally comes where he can't be part of Global Community Weekly anymore, Buck is going to put his own magazine out just called- I can't believe I'm going to skip this. Just called- 
truth. You want the truth? Well, we got it. This magazine's called Truth. Oh, man, it's such a bad name. And it sounds like something that a right-wing fundamentalist would call his magazine. Right. So, yes, we're on into chapter 19. I'm glad you mentioned that because I did not put the chapter break in my notes. Gotcha. Rayford enters suite 216 and is granted audience with the potentate. They have kind of like Carpathia in short. He's just like, oh yeah, I, I was going to break up with her, you know. Miss Durham over always overestimated the seriousness of our relationship. He's like, I don't care if she keeps it or gets rid of it. That's her deal. Like, if she keeps it, I'm not going to be active in this child's life. Like, I got more important things to do. I've like, moved on to another woman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you don't, you understand, I would never commit myself to just one woman. And he just keeps on throwing these jabs out there just at Hattie. Because the reason he called uh, Rayford in there is like, oh, yeah, can, can you, like, break up with her for me? Kind of, like, tell her, like, it's it's done. Like, uh, that, that's your, uh, that's your order. You go tell her it's over. I've got far too much work to do. This whole scene's like painting, uh, Carpathia as like the bad boyfriend in the scenario. Oh, he's painted as total scum and he yeah. is going to get painted as even more scum by the time we finish this chapter. He also looks Ray dead in the eyes and ups the stakes by asking him, by the way, what's your relationship to Cameron Williams? Rayford doesn't know, like, really how to approach this because Buck's uh, Buck's involvement with the Tribulation Force has kind of been in, incognito, like, until now. And he keeps, and he kind of still brushes off, like, oh, he's just my son-in-law, and I didn't tell you because that's just personal family business. And explicitly says he's trying to remain calm here. Like, Ray's kind of sweating. Essentially, and we heard earlier through Ray's eavesdropping machine, I forgot to mention this, that Carpathia knows. Because of the kind of operator that he is, Carpathia is never going to ask you a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. Yes. Which makes him a good villain. Yeah. And he's basically just letting him know, like, all right, Chief, I know more about you than you think. Clock's ticking. So we cut back to Buck now that the stakes have been raised, and Buck and Zion are testing out their video chat. It is the most clear, perfect-sounding almost lifelike video chat in the 1990s when I can't even get a FaceTime call all the time to not have some video artifacts and roboting. Like, even with my fantastic internet that I have here, like, I don't believe this for a second. And it's kind of funny because at one point he's like, yeah, can we try the video feature? He's like, man, I would like a companion for breakfast. You know, I'm, I'm making something just for you. Turns his screens like the webcam and like all two pixels, like just picks up the dark background and he can't, and Buck's like, yeah, can't see anything back there. Come on. Like, uh, because... like you never did that when our primary video chat was laptops, like turn your laptop around before we had like the front facing cameras on our phones. Right. Yeah. I totally did that. Like with trying to turn the brightness up so my clamshell light would would light up whatever I was trying to show them. <laughs> Look, see, is it in the frame? I can't see because my laptop's turned around. <laughs> it's taking me back. So Buck takes off. You know, he's gonna drive to the church and then he notices something. So Buck and Ray kind of both see this where they have a vignette where first Ray, he usually hears barking around global community, but now it's like every dog is barking and they're all trying to outrun their owners. And Buck notices on the road, there's lots of roadkill, like an abnormal amount. And there's squirrels, rabbits, snakes, possums, duck, geese, dogs, cats, just everywhere, just going crazy. Huge clouds of birds are going from tree to tree. The sky is bright and cloudless. 
all the fauna are acting really, really weak. And the wind has died completely. Mm -hmm. And then we cut back to Ray right in this moment of Nikolai's got him in his sights. He's got him on the ropes. And then he gets an emergency call from the Seismograph Institute. We get to worldwide earthquake territory. Suddenly the power goes out in global community. The earth starts shaking out of control. Carpathia orders that they need to evacuate. As soon as the earthquake begins, not only does the power go out in the GC building, the sun blinks out. And the whole world goes dark. They start scrambling to get out of the building. Mac is already at the helipad with rotors spinning. He's ready to go. Ray hops in and sees behind him, Nikolai has hopped in and goes, take off. And they see people running after them, trying to grab onto the helicopter. They're literally trying to climb in and Nikolai is almost pushing them out saying, go, go, telling him to lift off. And Ray argues with him for a minute and Nikolai's not having any of it. He straps himself in, the helicopter takes off. People are literally trying to grab the struts of the helicopter, but Nikolai won't let anyone else on. Ray watches the entire 18-story building filled with hundreds of employees just crash to the ground in a mighty roar of cloud and dust. Even says Rafer's ill. He just saw a lot of people die in like one second. And as the dust begins to dissipate, he looks out to the horizon and sees a bright blood red moon hanging in the dark sky in the middle of the day. Whew. This uh, keeps on going with Buck. Like we cut back to Buck and he's driving really fast like as he does but then like fissures start opening up in the road before him and he's having to drift to get around them and take different courses because literally the earth is opening up he's driving like a stunt driver in like a 2010s disaster like man of steel type scene like earth is opening and closing like like you said giant fissures are opening up sometimes the car gets tipped over and then another tremor will happen that'll set it back upright he's swerving he's fishtailing out of control he's trying to desperately drive to wherever he can get but there's no safe place Yeah, houses keep crumbling, people are screaming everywhere, tripping, falling into the earth. He almost falls into a fissure, but something happens to where a car falls into the fissure under him, and he drives over the car. Like, all of these split second, if this didn't happen, Buck would be game over. And then that car explodes, rocketing the Range Rover forward. Like, it's this is a crazy action scene. It might be the pinnacle of action scenes that we've read so far right and like buck is getting his money out of this range rover because it's it's still going like it like if you remember this range rover's already been through one whole thing with the whole atomic bomb drive sequence and it's still going with this yeah it's a great ad for range rover (laughs) and we cut back to ray as he's watching the blood moon rise and he sees nikolai's face and says in its awful red glow the man never looked more like the devil Where Nikolai, again, is almost smiling at the chaos and devastation around him. Right, so we're getting more uh, indwelling prelude there. Yeah, and then we we cut back to Buck for 
one of the final scenes, I think it's Buck's final scene, he's racing to New Hope because, I mean, it is the place with the underground shelter, so it might be the safest place for him to be. As he parks, he is dismayed to see that only the steeple is standing, and he gets out of the car to see people shambling like zombies throughout the streets, bloodied and broken, some of them crying out for God to kill them. Yeah, I actually wanted to bring that up. Yeah, right before he gets to New Hope, a middle-aged man, shirtless and shoeless, bleeding, looked heavenward through broken glasses, opened his arm wide, and screamed to the sky, God, kill me, kill me. And as Buck slowly bounced past in the Range Rover, the man was swallowed into the earth. And then he reaches the parking lot and sees a pair of legs sticking out beneath a crushed car. He recognizes the shoes. And Loretta is the second named character. Another Tribulation Force member bites the dust. Yeah. And as he looks up to the sky after seeing Loretta's dead body underneath the car, the sky opens up and meteors begin to fall and wreck everything that hasn't already been destroyed by the earthquake. The earth, like, gets just utterly demolished. Like I said, the the earth is kind of being flung back into Old Testament times. Yeah. And that that's the first kind of, like, big event of Almost that. like Sodom and Gomorrah. A little bit. And as Buck finally confirms that Zion is alive, he's able to speak down through one of the, uh, the ventilation shafts to the secret shelter and finds out that Zion is alive and Buck's going to try to go get him. We cut back to Ray for one final scene. They put the chopper down at one of the only safe places that they can currently find. Max sets the chopper down. And as they step out of the chopper, Ray, in a rage, grabs Nikolai by his lapels, slams him up against the side of the helicopter and says, you can explain this away any way you like, but you have just witnessed the wrath of the lamb. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end. Oh man, that was that like like I said before, they filled their book with plot and then saved the juiciest bit for the very very end. And I would argue this is a better paced juicy bit than we got in Tribulation Force. This is a better paced juicy bit than we got with the Stonegal scene at the end of Left Behind. It's dynamic, it's action packed. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's pretty well written all things considered yeah and even it has like a little bit of foreshadowing with like mentioning the earthquake a few times before so yeah pretty good book yeah man and so we're gonna take next week and do our off the record breakdown and wrap up for nikolai the rise of the antichrist thank you guys for going on this journey with us through book three and that's gonna do it for this episode of i survived the rapture i'm shane bazell and i'm gavin russell And until next time, uh, don't drive your Range Rover into a ditch. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, You can email us at RapturePod at gmail.com. And we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. He can tempt you and lead you astray.